0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back. This week we're going to cover a disaster that is not even a year old yet, but is one that has absolutely fascinated me since it occurred. This week we're going to talk about the 2020 Beirut explosion. Now I know many of you remember this happening. It was only on August 4th of last year, but there is so much more to this story than you could think. I mean, half a city blew up, so there's got to be a major issue, right? So this is going to be the story of how all those explosives ended up in a warehouse in the port of Beirut, where basically everyone forgot about them. But first, some quick down and dirty background on the city of Beirut. Beirut has been settled for a long, long time. Like, it's been settled since at least the Stone Age, long, long time. That's how old this city is. Obviously, it wasn't always called Beirut, but that's just what we're going to call it. The first major port we know of in this area is from the Phoenicians, which from there it fell into the hands of Seleucids, who destroyed it in a war and then rebuilt it, naming it Laodicea. Then it was conquered by the Romans in Pompey the Great in 64 BC, who changed the name of the town to Beirutus. And then after that, it changed hands a bunch, depending on the results of various crusades and invasions and that whole thing. And then it was captured by the Ottomans in the 1500s, and there were various revolts and invasions, and Beirut changed hands between the Ottomans and whoever else managed to conquer it numerous times until basically the early 1800s. By the mid-1800s, Beirut had to begun to grow into a major port city from trading with European countries. After World War I, Lebanon and Beirut came under control of the French before receiving independence in 1943 with Beirut as Lebanon's capital. From that point on, Beirut has been in almost constant state of various forms of political violence, invasion by Israel, and civil wars. But Beirut, the city, has managed to grow significantly in spite of all that. That doesn't mean anything good is happening in Lebanon or Beirut in particular, but it has had some good times and also has had some bad times and is a major spot for refugees from the Syrian civil war and other various wars in the region. Beirut is still the capital of Lebanon and sits on a peninsula about midway on between the north and south end of Lebanon on the Mediterranean coast. The port of Beirut sits on the north side of the peninsula that Beirut sits on, and the city itself has about 2.2 million people, which makes it the third largest city in the Levant region. Basically, the Levant is Syria, Iraq, Egypt, about half of Libya, Uh, all of Turkey, and some of Greece. That's basically the entirety of the eastern Mediterranean area, and Cyprus, and Crete, and those kind of islands. That's basically what the Levant is. So it is the third largest city in the Levant. It is a large city. And it is, unfortunately, a very corrupt city. So that kind of brings us up to about 2013. And we're not actually going to start our story in the port of Beirut, we need to start somewhere else. Where we need to start is Batumi, Georgia. There, the Moldovan flagged cargo ship the MV Rosas was docked and awaiting its cargo of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. What's ammonium nitrate, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Ammonium nitrate is used in several things, but primarily it is fertilizer and high explosives. It is a white crystal solid in a prill shape. It often comes in bags, large bags of several pounds. Now usually, ammonium nitrate by itself is not necessarily explosive unless combined with something else such as TNT or some type of fuel like gas or diesel or kerosene or just about any combustible, really. But ammonium nitrate can become explosive with the introduction of a fire. Ammonium nitrate itself is not flammable, however, it will melt and mix with other flammable material giving it the appearance of burning. The other thing it does when it melts is allow for other things that weren't burning before to burn hotter and faster. When that fire starts to burn hotter and hotter, the ammonium nitrate begins to decompose much faster. This leads to a scenario where the ammonium nitrate can become explosive if it is contained. There have been numerous detonations of ammonium nitrate throughout history that were caused by fires in a contained area with ammonium nitrate in that containment area. The process there is the ammonium nitrate begins to deflagrate through the decomposed substance and the containment of the propagating pressure wave leads to a detonation transition. So deflagration to detonation transition. Occasionally, ammonium nitrate won't even need to be contained in a small area. Just if you have a large amount of ammonium nitrate around, it can be enough containment to cause detonation just by the ammonium nitrate on the outside sitting on the ammonium nitrate on the inside. That's all you really need for containment sometimes. Basically, the gist is, storing large amounts of ammonium nitrate in areas with highly flammable material and in storage areas that are inherently flammable is a bad idea and you should not do it. And that's pretty much our quick dirty rundown of what ammonium nitrate is. So let's go back to where we were in September of 2013. We were on the Black Sea in Batumi, Georgia, standing on the deck of the Rosas. The ship at that point was about 27 years old. It had been built in the island of Shikoku in Japan in 1986. It was a general cargo ship and was about 284 feet long. And the owner was... Well, it's complicated. We'll get into that in a minute because it is a world of intrigue and confusion. Recently, though, the ship had been detained in Seville, Spain because of malfunctioning doors, corrosion on the deck, leaks, and deficient engines, so it is safe to say that the ship was not in shape. The Rosas was sitting at that dock on the Black Sea to receive a shipment of 275,000 tons, not pounds, tons of ammonium nitrate, and it's the ton with the "ne" on the end. Americans and British know about a ton without the "ne" is about 2,000 pounds even but a ton with the NE is a metric measure and is about 2,204 pounds. So basically, the Rosas was scheduled to ship about 6,061,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate. The manufacturer of that ammonium nitrate was a Georgia-based company by the name of Rustavi Azat, LLC. The explosives were going to be bought by a Mozambique company by the name of Fabrica de Explosivos Mozambique, or what I'm going to call FEM from now on. So the plan was for FEM to pay for the shipment upon receipt of the ammonium nitrate. FEM had been under investigation by Spanish authorities in connection with terrorist attacks in Madrid, Spain, in 2004, and were found to not have about 1,700 pounds of explosives missing in that investigation, which is weird. So this isn't a super great company that they are shipping this massive stockpile of explosives to, but it's georgia and mozambique and what do you really expect so real quick let's get into who owned this rust bucket of a ship because it was a rust bucket at this point it probably should never have set sail from georgia in the first place early investigations revealed a russian man by the name of igor krasutskin i'm very sorry owned the ship but recent investigations reveal this isn't entirely accurate so Krishuchkin was the man giving orders to the ship, and the crew on the ship, where to go, what to pick up, etc. But the true owner appears to have been a Cypriot businessman by the name of Charalambos Manoli. Manoli made every attempt to conceal that he was the true owner of the ship, but ultimately conceded that he actually was the owner. He had one of his companies register the ship in Moldova. He had a different company certify the seaworthiness of the ship, despite it being pretty clearly not seaworthy. And it's not been easy to figure out why he tried so hard to conceal his identity, but it's possible he tried so hard was because he has some connection to Hezbollah and, well, a shipment of explosives in the hands of a guy with connections to Hezbollah isn't a super great look, especially in Lebanon. So where does Igor fit in? Well, he was only chartering the ship in preparation to buy it, but had not yet. And the other issue with him trying to hide his identity was, especially with the Hezbollah connections, is somehow these explosives ended up in Beirut, where Hezbollah has a major, major foothold in Lebanon politics. So not a great look for the city of Beirut to get blown up, and a dude with connections to What the U.S. has determined is a terrorist organization being the owner of the ship that brought those explosives to the city. So you can kind of see why he decided, I should probably not admit that this was my boat. So that's basically, he was, Sheryl Ambos Manoli was the owner of the boat. Igor Grashuchkin chartered the boat and was giving the boat orders as far as we know. So now that we have all that laid out, let's sum up real quick. A rusty, barely seaworthy, Moldovan-flagged cargo ship is leaving Georgia with 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate in large sacks headed for a Mozambique-based explosive company with some potential ties to terrorist attacks, and that cargo ship is secretly owned by a man who has some ties to Hezbollah but being chartered by some random other guy. It does not sound super great when you pulled it in full context. But it's only going to get worse from here. The Rosas set sail from Batumi, Georgia on September 27, 2013. It sailed across the length of the Black Sea, through the Bosporus, and down the east side of the Mediterranean. But as the crew got close to Beirut, a curious thing happened. They received a call from the alleged owner, Igor Grashushkin. He told them they needed to make a stop in Beirut to pick up more cargo. This was an unscheduled stop that the crew was not ready for, but they did it anyway. On November 21, 2013, they made port in Beirut. They were supposed to pick up some heavy roadwork equipment like excavators and steamrollers. This was supposed to go to the port of Aqaba in Jordan before they then returned to the original trip to Mozambique. The reason they were given for picking up this load was allegedly that Grishchukhin didn't have the money on hand to pay the toll through the Suez Canal. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't really matter. In the process of onboarding the new cargo, one of the trucks sat on top of the door above where the ammonium nitrate was being stored and bent it. This led to an inspection by the Beirut Port Authority, which then led to the Rosas being impounded and not allowed to leave the port. After being found unseaworthy, or not seaworthy, is unseaworthy a word? Anyway, the Beirut Port Authority called Grishuchkin to get payment for the docking fees and suppliers tried to get food and fuel for the crew, but he did not answer any calls, abandoning the crew with almost no way to get food or water, because they were literally trapped on the ship. For 11 months, the captain and crew of the Rosas were trapped on board the ship with minimal fu- food and no way out. Since the crew were not citizens of Lebanon, they would be trapped on the ship until whatever legal matters were finished, and they were repatriated back to their homes. The captain of the Rosas, a Russian man by the name of Boris Prokoshev, had repeatedly asked the Russian embassy for help getting him off the ship, but only received mocking replies asking if he expected Putin to send in special forces to rescue him. The Russians are really helpful, even to their own people. Eventually, Prokochev sold off some fuel and was able to hire lawyers to help them. He literally had to buy his own lawyers to help him get off the ship by selling the fuel that was on the Rosas. That is ridiculous. Anyway... Those lawyers warned the Lebanese government that the boat could sink or blow up. Because again, there's 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate on this boat. That's not a good thing. This was eventually successful, and they were released, and lo and behold, Igor showed up again to pay for the crew to get back home. So he couldn't pay the docking fees, or for them to get food, but when they need to get home and he can swoop in to save the day, so sometime in tw- February of 2014, that 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate was moved from the ship to Warehouse 12 on the shore in the port of Beirut, and there it sat for six years. A few months after the cargo was offloaded, the director of Lebanese customs, Shafiq Mari, sent a letter to a judge trying to figure out what to do with it. It was never answered. Another letter was sent on December 5, 2014 then another on May 6, 2015, and again on May 20, 2016, and on October 13, 2016, and finally October 27, 2017. All of those were asking for a solution and warning that the cargo was dangerous, unstable, and an explosion hazard. And absolutely nothing was done. It was suggested multiple times that the cargo be given to the military or used as fertilizer or sold to a private explosives company. But they decided, nah, we'll just ignore it and let it sit there and not answer any of these letters. Early in 2020, Lebanon State Security investigated the stockpile to see what the issues were. There, they found a hole in the wall of the warehouse, and the gate to the warehouse was open. So it's possible that some of that ammonium nitrate had already been stolen. And I'm going to tell you, it was not used for fertilizer. And... Honestly, it is probably likely that it was stolen and used by Hezbollah at some point. Beirut's port is known to locals as Alibaba's cave due to how often things disappear from the port there and how often corruption runs rampant. Things get imported and upcharged or just straight up disappear. That's likely what happened to at least some of this ammonium nitrate. Clearly not all of it because, well, there wouldn't have been an explosion if all of it had been taken. Let's talk about Warehouse 12 for a minute. It had no sprinklers. It had no smoke detectors. It barely had electricity. And it wasn't just a warehouse for storing ammonium nitrate. Nah, that would be too easy. And not cost-effective. What the security guard found inside Warehouse 12 when he looked there, that hole in the wall was so much worse than just some simple ammonium nitrate being stored improperly. What he found was 200... 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate actively falling out of the bags, yes, but he also found about 15 tons of fireworks, 5 miles of fuse for explosives, jugs of oil, jugs of kerosene, and several jugs of hydrochloric acid. That officer, Major Joseph Nadoff, warned his superiors about this because, duh, that is basically all you need for a giant bomb. But he was ignored. Shocking, I know. He says he wrote at least four reports warning of the dangers of the warehouse at the port. All of those were ignored. All these warnings had been sent to customs authorities, three different ministries in the Lebanese government, the literal commander of the Lebanese army, and allegedly even the prime minister and the president. And yet, no one did anything of note besides. Hot potato with what was a 2,700 ton bomb. All this incompetence and ignoring of the problem came to a head on August 4th, 2020. At about 5 55 p.m. that evening, the fire brigade in Beirut received a call from Beirut police that witnesses had seen smoke coming from the area of the port. 1st Lieutenant Raymond Farah received the call and demanded more information about what was in the area saying that he wasn't going to send his firefighters into an area where they didn't know what was there. So not long after that, state security called and said the warehouse was only full of fireworks. So he sent them out. Which is a choice, because a warehouse full of fireworks is a massive explosive threat anyway. But we know it wasn't just fireworks in that warehouse. Absolutely no one else in the Beirut Fire Brigade had any idea that there was that much ammonium nitrate in that warehouse. They didn't know anything of what was in that warehouse. The only people that would know were the Port Authority people, the people that had ignored the letters over and over again over the years, and technically state security, but I'm guessing that most of state security didn't know what was in that warehouse. So, nine firefighters and one paramedic were sent to the scene. When they arrived, they radioed back that something was very wrong. It wasn't just a small fire. It was huge and it was making a really weird sound. They radioed back that they needed more firefighters to fight the blaze effectively, so Lieutenant Farab rang the bell to send some more. Just a few minutes after that, the explosion hit. At first, it was just a big cloud of smoke. You couldn't see any flames at all. But then there was a sudden bright flash at the base of the cloud of smoke, followed by some sparkles. Then another bright flash, and some more sparkles. And then just a few seconds later, an explosion. That explosion's pretty smoky and there's not much there, but it sends a tower of smoke higher in the sky. And it seems to really get the fire burning. There's now some orange glow visible at the base of the cloud. The smoke is really pushing out now. More orange glow. More sparkles. Then a humongous bright flash. It is so bright, it causes cameras pointing at the fire to wash out. It'll hurt your eyes looking at it in person. And then a massive fireball. It's literally the size of the grain silo next door that holds all of the grain for the entirety of Lebanon. And that fireball expands rapidly. And then the shockwave begins to travel out. The two warehouses south of Warehouse 12 are reduced to rubble almost instantly and then a massive wall of white, which was pretty weird. That wall of white is water vapor being forcefully pushed out of the air and condensing as the shockwave moves through it. It's literally making it rain because of the force of this shockwave. And now an invisible force is now rocketing through Beirut, ripping anything in its way apart and launching it through the air. Buildings don't stand a chance and are reduced to rubble. It slams into the first row of skyscrapers and tall buildings in either Beirut port. Windows, doors, parts of the building, glass, pieces of wood, and even people are violently tossed into the nearest immovable object. It was sending cars and people in the street flying through the air. It was just a few seconds, but that few seconds had leveled entire blocks in Beirut. The explosion left a massive crater 141 feet deep and 407 feet across in the area of the port. Buildings as far as 6 miles away were damaged by the pressure wave. Cars were flipped over into buildings. Steel-built buildings had all their exterior coverings stripped off. The grain silo next door to the warehouse partially collapsed and left the entire country of Lebanon with less than a month's worth of grain left. Multiple ships in the port of Beirut capsized after the explosion. Buildings all throughout Beirut were destroyed or significantly damaged. Navi Bulos is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He saw the smoke in the distance and had hopped on his motorcycle to head to get a better view of the smoke. He was driving down the road when his pressure wave hit and launched him off his motorcycle and smashed him into the ground. He woke up sometime later, dazed and confused, but still alive. He believes he was saved by his motorcycle helmet. Many will remember seeing the chilling video of the bridal shoot that was going on at the time of the explosion. Israa Seblani was doing her bridal shoot in a square in Beirut. Watching the video, you can see her smiling and dancing and happy, all dressed up in her dress. But that's when the cameraman realizes something is wrong. You can hear him say, Allahu Akbar. Then the blast wave shoots by and Isra's train is seen blowing in the wind. They all run for cover and then regroup to find out what to do next. But the part of the story that you don't see is Isra is actually a doctor and as they were traveling through Beirut trying to figure out what was going on, she began to treat patients that same day, walking back to figure out what to do next. The scenes after the explosion are nearly impossible to imagine. Over 6,500 people were injured in the blast, ranging from massive trauma and blood loss to broken bones to impaled limbs to cut that would require many stitches. Hospitals quickly became overrun with patients and doctors and nurses, some of whom had no idea if their families were alive, tried desperately to triage and care for this massive flood of patients rushing in off the street. It wasn't even that they had run out of bed space and room for all these people, it's that they were running out of floor space for the injured to lay on. They were having to care for patients in the parking lots of hospitals. Blood was running everywhere. Debris was everywhere. Cars were flipped over. People were walking in off the street in droves, injured, bleeding, and desperately needing help. And just to put this in full context, this was smack in the middle of a bad outbreak of COVID in Lebanon. Hospitals were already running cl- critically low on things like masks and gloves and gowns for the doctors and nurses. So they're trying to do operations in a hallway, sew up cuts, just generally do life saving things with essentially no PPE in the middle of what is basically a war zone at this point. One of the largest hospitals in Beirut was forced to treat basically all of their patients in the street and then evacuate the hospital because the hospital was so badly damaged that they had to close it because most of it was on the ground in rubble. All 10 members of the fire brigade that went to fight the original fire died in the explosion, most likely instantly. There were 207 confirmed deaths in this explosion. 22 different countries had a citizen counted among the dead. Because of Lebanon's location near Syria, Beirut has a large refugee population. Sadly, 38 refugees also died in the explosion, and at least 124 were injured, which if you think about it has to really suck. You escape from a war-torn country only to find yourself in a city that just got blown up by the biggest explosion anyone has seen. They literally had just escaped the Syrian Civil War. A literal war just to be transported into another war zone that's, well, not technically a war zone. In the aftermath of the explosion, protests by the citizens of Beirut began almost immediately. For weeks after the explosion, people filled the streets demanding better accountability from their government. Following that, many of the ministers in the Lebanese government resigned. And let's just talk about the size of this explosion for just a minute. The explosion was felt as far away as northern Israel and Cyprus. And when I said it was the biggest explosion anyone had ever seen, I wasn't joking. The estimated explosive yield is between half a kiloton of TNT and 1.1 kiloton of TNT, making it one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history, and by far the largest man-made explosion in the 21st century. It registered at one spot as a 3.3 magnitude earthquake and at another as a 4.5 magnitude earthquake. That's a big explosion. So let's talk about the cause of this explosion. The cause of the fire has been reported, but is not confirmed. The reported cause of the initial fire was a crew of workers welding a door near the warehouse, and sparks managed to ignite fireworks, setting off the fire. The reason that it isn't completely confirmed is, well, there's not much left of the area where the explosion occurred, and if the fire was close enough to Warehouse 12 to start a fire, most of that is now underwater and in many, many, many small pieces. So to get from fireworks to massive city-altering explosions, something had to happen. Once those fireworks really started burning, it was all over. The combination of fuels in the warehouse, the shock of the fireworks shooting off, the containment of the piles of ammonium nitrate just haphazardly stacked in this warehouse, the pictures show They just threw all the bags in there, lay where they lay, and many of the bags were ripped open. The ammonium nitrate was leaking on the ground. It was just whatever. It's not like this is a massive explosion waiting to happen. We're just going to toss these in here. So all of that combined for what we saw. The first explosion we talked about, the one that shot that first gray-colored cloud into the sky that wasn't really much of an explosion, Was actually a much smaller ammonium nitrate detonation. This one was likely a smaller pile that may have been separate from the other ammonium nitrate. It was inefficient and didn't have the proper containment needed, so therefore didn't cause the massive explosion. The second explosion was significantly more efficient, and if you look at videos and pictures, that reddish orange hue to the smoke, that's the ammonium nitrate after it has been exploded. That's the products that are left over after the combustion of the ammonium nitrate. That ammonium nitrate did have the containment it needed, and Beirut paid the price for their government ignoring all those warning signs. Obviously, an investigation was launched into the cause of this explosion, and it has been a disaster in and of itself. One judge was put in charge of the inquiry into the explosion, a man by the name of Fadi Sawan. That did not go well. Just a few months into the investigation, not a single official had taken any sort of responsibility for the explosion. Judge Silwan was given two clerks to help with this massive investigation of years of corruption. It was not nearly enough for him to get work done, but he did manage to get some done. He charged four high-ranking officials with criminal neglect causing death for their role and knowledge of the stockpile of ammonium nitrate. And that was immediately fought against by the highest people in the government. Two of those guys claimed immunity because they're sitting members of the Lebanese parliament, which is crap, but whatever. Judge Siwan was accused of politically targeting by Hezbollah, which, again, is a terrorist organization, so not super great. Well, alleged terrorist organization. And then a motion was filed to have him replaced. And then on top of that, the interior minister announced that he would not arrest the accused even if they had arrest warrants. Yay for blatant and obvious corruption. It was argued that the only way government ministers, current and former, could be tried was by a special trial and only after two-thirds of the parliament voted to indict them. Since bribery and corruption run absolutely rampant in Lebanon, that was never going to happen. But that's only the guys at the very top. A ton of people were arrested in connection with knowledge of the explosions that were low-level workers, including our old friend and basically one of the only good guys in the story, Major Joseph Nadoff. And all he did was repeatedly tell people something needed to be done, because, again, he does not have the power to move 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. And then, in a less than shocking turn of events... Judge Sawan was removed from the case on flimsy grounds that he was not neutral because his home was damaged in the blast. Which, again, most of Beirut was damaged in the blast. So that is confusing, or rather that is corruption, because, again, he was pushing forward with charging those guys with crimes, and clearly we cannot charge high-ranking government officials with crimes. That would be unheard of. How could we dare make someone be responsible for their own actions and, well, for their own inaction and their own corruption? How dare you make me bleed my own blood? So then a new judge was appointed by the name of Tarak Batar. If those charged before were hoping Judge Batar would be more corruptible, well, they were stone-cold wrong. Judge Batar charged more high-level members of the government with crimes, and released many of the low-level customs and port workers who had actually tried to get something done, including Major Joseph Nadaf. He was released. He has also requested that the ridiculous immunity laws be waived, but not much has moved forward, and it's very unlikely that they're going to get that two-thirds vote in the Lebanese parliament because, again, corruption, bribery, generally don't want to be charged with things that they caused to happen and don't want to take responsibility for. In the aftermath of the explosion, though, relief came flooding in from all over the globe. Relief was even offered from Israel, who Lebanon has no diplomatic relations with because technically they're still at war with each other and have been since about 2006. $300 million was raised by a French multinational summit. None of that aid money was given to the Lebanese government, however, it was all given to different charities. Literally, the French president was in Beirut and people from Beirut, the citizens, asked him not to give it to the government because they would just give it to themselves and lie in their own pockets. Literally, the French president Emmanuel Macron was walking through the streets of Beirut when a a woman yelled at him. You are sitting with warlords. They've been manipulating us for the past year. Macron replied, I'm not here to help them. I'm here to help you, and hugged the woman on the street. And it became loud with cheers. And thankfully all $300 million of that donations went to actual charities and not the government of Lebanon. Because again, corruption, bribery, and all-around terribleness. Beirut is still not back to the way it was before the explosion. I mean, it has been less than a year. The crater in the port is still there. The area surrounding the explosion is still flattened and filled with debris. But the people of Beirut and the people of Lebanon will not give up. They're still out in the streets protesting, fighting to get rid of the corruption and give themselves a government that will work for the people, not line the pocket of those in power not ignore dangerous chemicals and stick them in warehouses where they will be forgotten about for years. The people of Lebanon can do it, and we can hope that those who are directly responsible for this catastrophe, the high-up ministers and judges who ignored this for years, will face the justice the victims deserve. And I know one of the questions that many of you will have, is it possible for this to happen elsewhere? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. Even in the United States, ammonium nitrate is not well regulated. Just seven years ago, in West Texas, a stockpile of ammonium nitrate for fertilizer blew up part of a town. It's not an uncommon thing. Literally in that West Texas explosion, the fire department had no idea the ammonium nitrate was there, so it could absolutely happen in the United States. Ammonium nitrate is not listed on OSHA's list of highly hazardous chemicals, toxics, and reactives. It was specifically not put on there because of the ATF, but that's a whole different issue we can get into in another episode, because I will be covering the West Texas Explosion in the future, and we will get into that. So, basically the answer is yes. An ammonium nitrate explosion, not quite the size of Beirut, but pretty close, can happen anywhere in the world because it is not a well-regulated chemical in a lot of places, especially not the United States. That's just how it is. And until we figure out that this is a problem we need to take care of and we need to take proper steps to properly store and care for ammonium nitrate to make sure that it will not explode, these explosions are going to keep happening unfortunately. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, history spelled H-S-T-R-Y, and on Instagram at Disastrous History, history spelled correctly. You can also find me on TikTok, Disastrous History, still spelled correctly. We also have a website, DisastrousHistory.com, where you can go read the episodes as articles with pictures and some videos and stuff like that. So, if you want to do that, you can. And if you want to send me an email letting me know how I'm doing, it's disastershistory at gmail.com. And also, unfortunately, podcasting is not free. So, I have a coffee set up. It's ko slash disastershistory. If you want to donate, that would be spectacular. There's no content or anything hidden behind a paywall, uh, everything is here for free. That's just a donation if you're feeling generous. Uh, I appreciate you guys for listening. As always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.